1953, when Earl Warren became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, abortion was illegal in almost every state. Prayer in public schools was an accepted part of national life. Rural populations enjoyed hugely disproportionate representation in both Congress and state legislatures. Blacks in the South could not vote and lived in a system not much different from the apartheid of South Africa. Women were given no special protection against discrimination because their proper place was still deemed to be in the home, and police had no obligation to inform anyone of their constitutional rights. In the following two decades, Supreme Court decisions altered each of these facts. Oliver Wendell Holmes appears on almost every list of the Supreme Court's great justices. He spent the last fifty years of his life on the bench, twenty as a justice of the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, and thirty on the United States Supreme Court. He wrote a classic book of legal scholarship, and before that managed to get himself wounded in three separate Civil War battles, once finding himself briefly behind rapidly shifting enemy lines. Holmes's experiences, among other things, led him to see law in very concrete terms. In 1897, in a seminal article in the Harvard Law Review, Holmes wrote, "The prophecies of what the courts will do, in fact, and nothing more pretentious, are what I mean by the law." Holmes asked his readers to imagine a man who cared nothing for ethics or morality. For such a person, the law only matters because it forces him to fit his behavior to the minimum set of standards needed to keep him out of jail. Holmes emphasized that his was not a cynical view of the law. He wasn't saying that law had nothing to do with morality. Quite the contrary, Holmes also wrote, "The law is the witness and external deposit of our moral life." What Holmes was getting at was the connection between the purpose of law and the need to study and understand it. For it was up to the lawyers, judges, and legislators to make the bad consequences of the law clear enough to restrain the unethical man's behavior. Debating the judiciary at the Constitutional Convention, Article Three of the Constitution, dealing with the national judicial power, is so brief as to seem almost an afterthought. The only court actually provided for is the Supreme Court, and as we shall see in a moment, it was left to Congress to flesh out the structure of the rest of the federal judicial system. Only two issues dealing with the judiciary were seriously debated at the convention: one, whether there should be a system of inferior federal courts. And two, who would appoint Supreme Court justices? These debates were themselves part of larger issues. The argument over inferior federal courts was simply one dimension of the convention's struggle to achieve a balance between national and state power. Those advocating state power did not want a federal judiciary other than a Supreme Court at all. Analyzing the debate. All of the perspectives presented above represent important points of view in the conversation over how to apply the Constitution. They certainly do not represent the entire universe of ideas on the subject, and they are presented in a very basic form. Nevertheless, they do encompass some ideas about constitutional interpretation that are worth a slightly closer look. Politics is about power. In a democracy, political power is awarded to those who win elections. The Constitution, however, says almost nothing about how elections should actually be conducted. The Constitution's treatment of the election process is typical of its terseness on many subjects. That terseness is a great strength of the Constitution, but it also has left an extraordinary amount to be interpreted, gaps to be filled in, ambiguities to be resolved, soaring praises and ideas to be applied. 
We have seen that the Constitution's terseness extends to the Supreme Court itself. The very judicial supremacy that allows the Court to be the final arbiter of the Constitution was earned, not guaranteed. That continues to be true today, because, like so many things in our democracy, judicial supremacy ultimately depends on public acceptance. The Constitution is not the only thing that makes democracy work. Even more important is the respect that everyone, regardless of their deeply held political differences, holds for the system itself and for each other. That is why the friendships on the court that transcend ideological differences are both moving and important.